Well, let's, uh, let's pray. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for this Bible study. Again, we're grateful for the weather warming up a little bit. Today, melting the snow off, we'd ask that uh, you would bless our time in your word, in your son's name. Amen. Well, we're in chapter three. The last three weeks, we'll be doing chapters at a time. Um, uh, uh, the thoughts and the, the lengths are very uh, comparable, so um, that'll take us through the end of the book. Um, in chapter three, um, there is a... Um, um, John goes to greater lengths to push this button of what it is to be a Christian, obviously what it is to be a Christian, and consequently how you know you are one. The book is about being assured you're a believer, and it's not going to be by all the uh, cultural or memberships or, or involvements or pieties. It's going to be keeping the commandments of God, Primarily that you love one another. That's going to be that's going to be it. Um, in verse one, he says, "See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called shall should be called children of God, and so we are." The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Well, as I mentioned before, the, the, the book of 1 John is sort of the condensation or the uh, distillation of much of what John addresses in his gospel. Uh, in the first chapter of John, I have it here over on the side, but all who received him believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's a uh, um, a strong. Well, you you get to it in 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 uh, John three with being born again, born from above. The idea of being um, uh, born of God is a um, um, a crucial thing for John. Now. When we talk about being born from God, now this will play later in the book as well. He, he talks about those who are born of God. Um, it's a. It's not merely a uh, a thing in which. It's not merely a thing in which we are um, uh, to love, but it's a circumstance in which we have been loved. See what love. Uh, we just started. Okay. Thank you. Um, see what love the Father has given us. This this relationship of love that we love um, because He first loved us. The kind of Christian life that and I've seen an awful lot of it in the decades I've been a Christian. Awful lot of unloving Christians. Awful lot. Uh, personal annoyances, bitter church fights, attitudinal uh, pastors who are dogmatists about whatever, who can't seem to play well with others. And you go, did they miss the point? 
this whole thing, the new covenant, the ethics of the believer, that the, the two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, the new commandment for the church, love one another, um, the idea that all of our ethics stem from love, for love does not wrong his neighbor. Um, you suddenly realize, or you should have realized, that this is something steeped in love, and that is, if you're looking at your life for assurance's sake, saying, who am I? Do I love? The, 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 am I one of these? I have been loved, if I'm, I am been called a child of God. I mean, if I can reverse this first verse, see what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. If I am to be called a child of God, I must have been a recipient of the love of God. Yeah, that's... If, if that exchange didn't happen to me, this can't be said of me. I can't, if, I, if, I, if I'm not seeing... Um, um, well, the parable of the, uh, the unrighteous uh, uh, servant who is forgiven the great debt and then chokes the, his fellow servant for the very small debt that he is owed. He doesn't appreciate the love he received. He does not appreciate the forgiveness he gained. When you begin to realize that that which I am getting from God is love, and it's going to hang some... Um, it hangs a degree of our understanding of love on the love we receive, that which we know about love, we have to contemplate the love we received. Um, this, when it says that the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Again, put yourself in the position of, I'm either in the world or I'm in the body of believers. If I'm in the world, it's through my not knowing him if I don't have a relationship with the believers, because his key thing is love the brethren, if I don't have a, um, if I don't have that, it's because I don't know God. I don't know He who loved us and gave us the power to become children of God. If I go back to the John one passage, I begin to realize where I, how I got there. I believed in His name and received Him. He gave that person the power to become a child of God. So there's the exchange is what love the Father had for us and what response we had to that love, belief and reception, and that made us the children of God. If I'm not, if I don't see God as he is, like it said in chapter 1, um, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. No one can say I love God and hate his brother. I, the, you, my knowledge of my, God's relationship, God's nature and God's relationship to me is and my encounter with it is a uh, is a ground by which um, uh, my participation in Christ occurs. If I'm not participating in that kind of love, I probably didn't see it. I probably didn't know it. I, I probably didn't know him. And he puts this uh, this this promise, this future. It's a great one. Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be. We've got this state here. We have another state coming which we don't know much about. This is the apostle. Um, people who imagine their futures. Well, you can, uh, you can entertain yourself that way, but the apostle doesn't know what we shall be. Um, but we have one confidence that we will be like him when we see him. 
Well, that truth, to the degree we see him, to that degree we are, are uh, molded to it. To the degree I see the love of God in the gospel, to that degree I'm looking around at the world in a different, hopefully a different way. Um, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3.18, I was just quoting this the other day, it might have been in church. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. My apprehension of God, my apprehension of Christ, knowing that at some future date I'm going to see him as he is, we appear as we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Okay, so to whatever degree, going into that, that I have seen him, I know him, to that degree I'll be changed. St. Paul says that it's from one degree of glory to the next. As we look upon Christ, um, or we get changed into his likeness. John agrees with that, because in verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him, if I got this hope, that I'm a child of God now, I don't know what's coming, but I know I'm going to be made like him when I see him as he is. That's the, and what I have now is already a reflection, an imitation, a reaction of what I have seen in God. Paul says, and we continue looking at him, and we're changed in gradient amounts into his glory. And he says here, if I'm hoping for this, I purify him, he purifies himself as he is pure. The second he is Christ, or God, the Father. That, that we look on, that, that if I have this hope that I'm going to be changed into Christ's likeness in some final glorious way when I see him as he is, my intervening time is going to be spent adjusting myself according to him. So, uh, that adjustment is a, um, uh, for John, is a natural place to be. Um, oh, David. Um, so, that sets us up for. Um, a chair. Oh, there's some back here. Yeah. Tiny ones. You get a desk. You get a desk. <clears throat> we just uh, we're up to verse up through verse three. We're talking about how the love of the Father in our salvation, making us children of God, is a is the beginning point for our our uh, knowing. One of the beginning points for us knowing we're saved. It's our interaction with the love of God, seeing Christ as He is. Um, purifying herself as he is pure um, uh, because that is the natural trajectory and and believe me uh, somebody was talking to me the other day it was maybe my father or somebody um, um, oh I think it was my son on the phone just the degree of of ungodliness in what claims to be the church the degree of um, people being at ease with their their wickedness, uh, um, and no, 
and 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 the church not being defined in its own mindset. And matter of fact, there's even a a, a buzz going around about brokenness. Everybody likes to be broken because everybody's broken. You know that rather than saying, "No, hold it." This Christianity thing is supposed to be this trajectory of the sinner loved by God, brought in, atoned for, forgiven, changed, um, uh, set on a path of righteousness for the sake of not sinning. And John is, is for the one book that's about about assurance of salvation, uh, explicitly, um, there is a load of unforgiving passages like the next one. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. If I'm going back to the first paragraph and I say, it's my apprehension of God in Christ that changes me into their likeness. I'm supposed to be imitating their love. I'm supposed to be honoring their love with how I respond. I'm supposed to be purifying myself according to his purity. Like when it says, be ye holy as I am holy, says the Lord. And uh, it's sort of like uh, something that is not a very... uh, You could see why John, early in the church, nobody had Bibles, let alone Bible studies, and nobody was reading commentaries because there were no commentaries, and nobody had all the study helps. It was just a religion that was hung up by the presence of men like the apostles and teachers who were going around grounding them by their words in what was true about it. That we're 2,000 years later, there should be no excuse in our minds about what the job here is. The job of Christ, he appeared to take away sins, and he was not a sinner. And in him there is no sin. Now, that's supposed to be like just a, a you know, you pin that on the fridge or, or magnet that on the fridge. So with that being the case, sin is lawlessness and Jesus Christ is dead set against it. It was the old joke about Calvin Coolidge going to church. Um, it's one of those jokes I think I tell all the time, so you probably heard me tell it, but it was actually a moment in history. Uh, he came home from church and he didn't say much as a man. And his, his wife asked him what the sermon was on and he said sin and she said oh, what about sin he was against it that was the well, that's what we have to we have to come back to this sin god's against it christ is against it his atonement and his character have waged wars on two fronts on it what his example was though he was tempted never matter like his weight yet without sin and he died for the rest of us who didn't have quite such a noble encounter with it. Um, and he identifies in verse 4 that sin is lawlessness. I want you to remember that. Because, that, because sin is a word that doesn't come home to you. You know, people tell, tell you uh, sin is an archery term for missing the mark. Well, yeah, we you know, that could be anything from a mistake to... Uh, an error in judgment, uh, evil, um, but lawlessness lets you know what we're up up against. So, so I, what I want you to remember um, that um, um, 
what we're going into was preceded in this book, back in chapter 1, week 1, John, 1 John 2, 1. So that you, I'm writing these things to you, my brethren, that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So, two chapters earlier, or one chapter earlier, two lessons earlier, uh, we have codified in the book that John doesn't think it's impossible for a Christian to sin. Okay? He's already let you know that. You know that from, he said, the point is that you ought not. And we have a grace available to us if we do. But we ought not. So when you hear some of these, someone comes at you quoting out of John 3, 1 John 3, verse 6, No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. Somebody quoted that at you. You know, you're a brand new Christian, six weeks. You've already cussed once, and you knew it was wrong. And somebody reads this and says, No one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has either seen him or known him. You're not a Christian. It land on you pretty hard. But you have to remember where you are. You're not going week through week by week by week, or you're not having the freedom with your own Bible in your hip pocket to cherry-pick verses for your life or develop a theology based on texts that are disconnected. You're supposed to, this is a message from John to his, the churches he was responsible for, the saints he was responsible for, and the argument went from 1 John 2, well, from the first chapter all the way through to now. So they already know that there is grace for the sinner in Christ. I'm writing these things that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Pretty clear. So what's he saying here? If he's not saying that, what is he saying? Back in verse 4, he lets you know that, at least right now, he's dealing with sin as lawlessness. They're guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Well, that sets it in a different category than your cuss word. Okay? That sets it in your different category than your cuss word. The idea of lawlessness means that you are, you might say, extremely libertarian. You're only going to do what you decide is you want to do. Nothing controls you. I am the master, the captain of my soul, the master of my fate, the famous poem. Um, that's lawlessness. That is, I am not in submission to anyone. We're running into that in the, that, the uh, Pilgrim's Regress with virtue. He, he wants to decide what he's going to do, only he. And he will never submit to anything, any reward or any curse. He will decide what he's supposed to do. Of course, it drives him batty. But that's lawlessness. Now, some people use their lawlessness in some sort of, I will be upstanding, like the humanists on the billboard, you can be good without God. Um, that's what they would like to think. But they're giving everyone the freedom to be not good without God. They're giving everyone the freedom to function exactly as they want. Because as soon as they say, yeah, but you shouldn't lie on your contracts, or you shouldn't murder people, or, you know, kidnap small boys, 
They say, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. You're putting a law now on me. You're imposing your morality on me. Lawlessness, sin is a, as a, you might say, a life um, commitment. That's what lawlessness says. I'm serving me. I'm not serving any authority of good. So if he's using it that way, and you can decide for yourself, given that he already said that it's possible phenomenally for a Christian to sin and be forgiven, um, he who abides, anyone who, no one who abides in him sins, in other words, is lawless. If I apply the synonym. He already told me what the synonym was. If no one who abides in him is lawless. No one who is lawless has either seen him or known him. So this idea that we are been changed by our encounter with God's love, we purify ourselves in reference to him as he is pure, we know that when we see him we shall be like him, our whole idea is to see him and know him because we want to have him as Lord and Lords rule. Lords have laws. Lords govern. That's what they do. That's what the Christian has found. They have found a Lord they are going to serve. They have found a law that they are going to obey. Someone who lives in lawlessness doesn't abide in him. And someone who lives in lawlessness has either seen him or known him. That's given that I have to account for back in chapter 2. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who does right is righteous, as he is righteous. It comes down to that. You're going to look at what the results are, not the doctrine. Because the whole nature of the doctrine, the encounter with God, what we believe about him, is so I can access the actual privilege of being with Christ, seeing him as he is eventually, seeing as I can learn about him now, I'm going to be have rightness produced in me. Now, I either am going to be under the law of God, not, not the Mosaic law, not, not in that sense, under the imperative, the ethical imperative of God, the virtue God would like to have me live by, or I will be going back to it. If I sin, I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I'm either in his righteousness or I'm going back to his righteousness. I'm either... Uh, in his in his in uh, ethics, or I'm going back to his ethics. I don't get to be unethical. I don't get to be um, lawless. We'll run into that a little bit later in the book as well. Um, he who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. <laughs> John can be really clear. He sometimes will say, well, I don't quite understand. What we don't understand is the, you might say, the intensity of John about things. <clears throat> he wants to tie each of us to some supernatural force. And if we are in the Father, we are tied to the Father. If we are in sin, we are tied to the devil. That is the devil's. And God, the devil's, uh, 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 he is an adversary, an accuser, a anti um, the things of God. And God came in Christ to destroy the, the works of the devil. So I know he came to take away sins. 
I know he came to destroy the works of the devil. I know that people are caught up in one of two camps. They are either serving the enemy or they're serving the Lord. And John wants you to remember that in everything. I like that when Lewis talks about it in Weight of Glory, how you're supposed to recognize what um, you're dealing with in every person you meet. You're either dealing with someone that's going to be some hideous nightmare at some future date or something you'd be tempted to worship. That's, those are the two categories of human beings. Some eventual troll in hell and some deity. And these are the, these are the uh, you might say, the, the categories and these are the qualities of the categories. Righteousness, he do right, is righteous as he is righteous. If I sin, I'm of the devil. No one born of God commits sin. For God's nature abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now again, think about the verse that you have to tie it to. The same author, a chapter earlier. Chapter and nine verses earlier. Is he talking about sin as the incident of sin? I did a bad thing. Where my own chastisement reminds me that I am under the law of God. Now here's a basic definition of, of uh, government that may, may help you. It applies to all governments. Um, it's the nature of imperium, the Roman imperium, where the ruling agent, if they're going to make laws, they have the power to curse and the power to bless in reference to their law being obeyed or disobeyed. If I, if I, I can still be under the authority of that law if I break their law and accept their punishment. Okay, that's not a violation. If, you, if, you, if your king told you, uh, you have to curse God. No, sir, I will not do it. You may punish me as you, as you will. I am still under his authority. I am still under his law. I'm accepting the punishment for my, for my sin, for my political sin. Um, th because his rule is based on who he can curse and who he can bless. Um, so in many ways, as the Christian realizes, when they sin, it says in Hebrews that um, the Lord disciplines the sons, chastises the sons whom he loves. Those who are without chastisement are illegitimate. They're bastards. And uh, uh, you want to be sure, for the sake of emotional reassurance, but also for the sake of realizing I am under the law of God, is recognizing the chastisement of God and having it put you right with him. You confess it and forsake it and, and, and the like. Um, so, um, no one born of God commits sin is a um, is a place I can't if I'm really saved, I can't be. I cannot be in lawlessness. Uh, unbelievers, you know, sure they feel guilty, but they stand like a fish, fish breathes water. I mean, they, it's their world. It's the way, what they've devoted themselves to, um, uh, following their own uh, discretion. Um, for the Christian, even when we sin, we find our, if you're truly saved, you find yourself just beat up by the Lord. And, you know, the, what David says in the psalm about restoring to him, you know, his, 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 everything was 
beat up inside of the expression in Psalm 51 uh, of his um, um, of his confession to God. That's what you feel when you're a Christian and you've sinned. Now, you might say, Evan, yeah, I think you're taking it too far here, but at least say, when it says, no one born of God commits sin, um, and we were all called children of God through the love of the Father, back in verse 1, so we are born of God. We know that we, in John 3, that being born again um, uh, from the belief in the Son, that's how we become born again. And we also know that it is possible for someone so born again to do something wrong, to do some sin. The question is, is it lawless? Or is it, you might not lawful sin, but is the sin that you commit, when you commit it, under the hand of a lawgiver in your life? The, the authority for your ethics, does he exist in your life when you sin? If you do not find yourself feeling any kind of reaction to it, if you could sin with impunity, not just an area of Christian liberty, but I mean really push your mother down the stairs sort of thing, uh, murder somebody, uh, tell a bald-faced lie for your own wicked gain, you know, and I feel bad about it. Yeah, I wonder if you're a Christian. Please do. That's why an assurance book is out there. If you don't do right, that's how you know you're a believer. It's not because you threw a stick in the fire at camp. You know, that's not where it's, uh, where it happens. Where it happens is us encountering God and being changed into his likeness. And this is an ethical thing, an ethical process, verse 10. By this it may be seen who are the children of God. This is one of those, it's red, so it's important. By this it may be seen who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. We can tell. Simple. Are they bad people? Are they good people? Whoever does not do right is not of God, nor he who does not love his brother. The point of Christianity, doing what is right and loving the saints. It's a simple, it's a simple message. Uh, it's amazing how you might say how much stuff isn't in this book, and it's not discussing how often you go to Bible study. It's not discussing how much you read your scriptures or how much you pray. It's just saying, what's the result? Have you met God? If you met God, this is going to be happening to you. Verse 11, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. He does it, he's like a terrier. He's not letting this go. I mean, it's, it gets shaken every which way you can imagine all the way through the book, that we should love one another. When we don't love one another in Christ, there's lawlessness. Someone is deciding that their attitudes their reactions, the way they want to feel about it, is the thing they're going to obey. Not God. And they feel, my father was telling me, he was in Seattle a few weeks ago and talking to Calvary Chapel uh, over a week and a lot on bitterness. And he said it was amazing how good a church it was and how many bitter, bitter people there were in it. <laughs> Just 
<laughs> unbelievable degrees of bitterness. And it's amazing how people will just, they'll even think that bitterness is a virtue. They've got that worked out. And my daughter posted on the Facebook the other day, it's like, drinking poison yourself and hoping your enemy dies. That's the, uh, um, that's what bitterness is, is you're drinking the poison, you feel rotten, you're, you're a mess, and it's all about, well, he did so and so. Loving one another, from the beginning, has been the banner snapping over the Christian, the Christian army. One or both of the parties in an unloving situation. A lot of times it's both. Sometimes, many times it's just one. Um, someone is sinning. And not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So we're getting these two camps laid out for us. We're mimicking either Christ or the devil. I am either under the law and guidance of God, or I am under my own law, lawless ideal. Um, and uh, there is going to be an antipathy. Not only does the absence of God in your life keep love from being there, but it makes for antagonism. It makes for antagonism. He murdered him because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not wonder, brethren, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death unto life, into life, because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. And there is a path, a narrative in your life that you were in this world once, you were in death, you have passed out of death into life, and we know that we have because we love the brother. If I, yeah, it's not, again, it's not walking the aisle, it's not signing a card, it's not getting baptized, it's not any of the things that we dress it up with. Uh, I like to point out when I'm arguing with people who are infant Baptists uh, and rigorously so, I, I, I say, well, is it, is it decoration or is it necessary? Is it something that you feel is a symbol or is it, could you be saved without it? Well, most of the believers I know believe you'd be saved without it. So it's decoration then. It's not, it's, we can all, all agree that it's decoration. But um, we can get caught up in all sorts of things that we make mountains out of them and their theological, ecclesiastical molehills. This is the mountain. Loving your brothers. Because you, if you don't, you still live in death. That's, and the world of death not only isn't loving, it's, I, I want to point this out, it's not just not loving, it is antagonistic to it. Um, it's at war with us. The world hates us. You will never get a fair, truly a fair treatment because people, Bradley and I were talking about his uh, persuasive speech ideas, you know, when you talk about spiritual things before non-believers, you got to realize this is true. You know, this is this without the gospel, they're they're um, they could be reasonably fair. They can try to have an open mind, but they can't get too open because their own conscience is on the line. Their own sins are being exposed. Um, they don't like it, from what I gather. Um, 
Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now he's tying all this back to Cain. Cain murdered his brother because his other deeds were evil, his brother's righteous. And he is saying, this is the similarity. If you hate your brother, you're a murderer. Now this is very similar to the, the Matthew 5. You've heard it said, to the men of old, you shall not kill. Whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. John was listening closely. He knew that the um, that hatred you know, people talk about well, what is hatred? What's love? What's what's going on? Does God hate things? You know, I, do I not have, say uh, David says, do I not hate them with a righteous hatred? I think Psalm one thirty nine. I think it is. You know, we say well, it's confusing as a word, but it's good, best to stick to the. When you got these vague terms of, of uh, you might have all sorts of subjective qualities to them. Your own, it's like pain. You don't really know when you're telling someone about your headache and how much it hurts. You, you're really pretty sure they have no idea. And you can't say a thing that will convey to them because they think you're a malingerer. You know, you got this migraine. You you're feel like you're... you're you know, what is it called? Your frontal lobes are oozing through the cracks in your skull and it hurts bad. And they think you've got this kind of a, a slight headache. You can't explain it to them. That's why you it, need the headache test. We need a headache test? Or is it like pressing on it like a steak? What? Saturday Night Live commercial. Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> um, well, um, why was I pointing out that we can't... Oh, words like hate and love. Let the text, rather than you filling in the blank with your own imagination, some people think of love as, you know, they can only think of it as, oh, well, it's a puppy, you know, uh, that sort of that sort of fondness. Um, it is the puppy. Okay. <laughs> We'll, we'll chat later. Um, so when it says love and hate, when it says you've got to watch out for not loving because hating your brother is like being a murderer. A murderer is just there, you might say, bringing to life. <laughs> That's an awful pun. A murderer is not bringing to life, but he's bringing to life his hatred. He's living it out. He's, he is rejecting He's detesting. He's turning away from this person he should have loved. But Cain, his brother, you, your brothers and sisters in Christ, we know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Why would you think you could hate your brother and, uh, and get away with it? By this we know love. Ah, oh good. Okay. Here we are. A definition. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. Well, you can't really expect that we get to get crucified for the sins of well, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brother. Oh, yeah, I guess we can't expect it. He, he actually expects it. 
He expects us to find this love, not only can you define it in, in Corinthians 13, great love is kind, patient, um, uh, not jealous or boastful, all sorts of good things that you say, I look at myself, because my, my assurance of salvation is hanging on this. My knowing. Do I have to know the love of God? I want to be in, uh, having this exchange with Christ and my growth in Christ to be, be more and more like him. But what is it I am being like? Well, definitions like Corinthians 13, measure your love and measure it biblically. And then you'll look at this and go, how do I know love? Well, Jesus loved. How do I know? Well, do I lay down my life for the brethren? Now, we know we're not going to some suicide pact to crucify ourselves or go all heaven's gate and, and poison ourselves to lay down our lives for one another. He's not even probably referencing it in even, even in persecutorial terms like the early church experienced, that you turn yourself in to die for somebody else. But our lives get laid down somehow. The hatred in somebody, and I was thinking about this as I, um, well, listen for the next verse, listen to the next verse. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Can't say be warmed and filled. If he closes his heart, that's a great phrase. It's the, you know, I was thinking that hatred and love are whether or not I'm closed, I've turned away, and I've closed myself off, or I've turned toward them and opened myself up. Um, Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians. We have opened our hearts to you. Open your hearts back to us. That's what he says in 2 Corinthians. This idea of of, of um, blending with the other believers, having this, my life is at the disposal of the saints. Is that how your life is? Because, remember, you've got to prove to yourself that you love the brethren like St. John wants you to love the brethren. That's what, because that's what he telling you, you know, you'll feel like a Christian when you love, like I'm telling you, you'll really feel like one. You won't be counting on the stick in the, in the fire. You won't be counting on walking the aisle or the baptism. You'll be count. you'll just look at yourself and go, thank God I am like Jesus Christ in this. You have to be able to measure it because you have to walk away with confidence somehow in all of this. So do you close your heart? And I say that doesn't just say you murder them, but remember, hatred may be exactly that. Hatred is murder without the person being dead, but how is it murder without them being dead? Well, they have become nothing to you. Their life is, you've turned away from it. You've closed yourself off from them. The person who does not seek out the love of the brethren, who does not live in accordance with their, if they're all about themselves, and boy, that is the zeitgeist. These days, it is the way of man for everyone to be concerned about what they're doing. What they're doing. My wife and I have discussed it a lot. 
wringing our hands, rending our garments and pouring ash on our heads, um, about how the, the current age, nobody, everybody wants to keep all their options open. I've mentioned this before, I know. Everyone, nobody wants to give their word, oh, I'll do that. Sure, because if something else comes up that's more fun, I'll go do that. I'll, 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 I want all my options open. I don't ever, ever want to tell somebody I'll do something. I want to stay in complete touch with my whole world so that the best possible thing for me can be done. Well, because everybody's training themselves to live for themselves. They are lawless. They're not moved by the law of love, the law of Christ, the law of liberty. They are not moved by any of this. They're moved by getting ahead for themselves, whatever that may be. They've closed themselves to the rest of the world. We have a debt of not just love for the brethren, we love this, the, the ungodly as well. We've got, we've got loving to do, and that means turning towards, giving yourself up for others. And then he says, little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in deed and in truth. That's one of the one of the great things about being a Bible study leader or a pastor is you get to you know you get to talk about love and how much we need to love and you get to make a fist and you get to drive the point home and everybody goes, Yeah, yeah, he's right. And I get to say it and you get to listen to it and, and everybody, oh yeah, love. Isn't that what's make the world go round? Love is all you need, I think. Is that how the phrase goes? Love is all you need? Beatles. The Beatles. They were right. Um, and everybody goes home feeling blessed in word and speech. The pastor's blessed because he got to say it. Everybody else is blessed because I got to hear it. But indeed, in truth, it isn't good enough. That's all that John just doesn't let us up. It's, it's the, the tragedy of a, of a well-distilled mind. He's been thinking about this since Jesus talked to him, okay? Jesus talked to this guy. The Jesus. Talked to him. He was Jesus' best friend. The disciple whom Jesus loved. That's who John is. John's been thinking about this for decades. He's finally writing, sitting down and writing out his thoughts on the matter. And he wants you to focus as much as he has distilled this to love. You ought to, too. Take his maturity and jump over your years of inane living and get right down to business with deed and true loving. And, you know, what are some of the other deceptions that can happen? Well, sometimes things are dangled out in front of the church that we use, social action, the needy, etc., to prove, to prove to ourselves we're loving people. We give to good ministries, you know, that do things, Hope Center, we do things that... that that uh, we give money to a homeless guy on the street, we, you know, we, or we get involved in a ministry to the homeless. So we, all those are, are fine to do, fine to do. But I think sometimes we hide our real deed and truth under this, you might say, broader, less personal, less about you. Remember, you're trying to prove you're a Christian, not that we are. 
You're not trying to prove you're a Christian, not that All Souls Christian or whatever church you're in is a Christian church. So your deed and truth, what's the old line by P.J. O'Rourke? Everybody wants to... End world hunger. Save, save, save the world. Everyone wants to save the world, but nobody wants to help mom do the dishes. And that's, um, that's pretty much it. The deed and truth, there are probably some much closer deeds and truths of your love that need to happen. Your spouse, people in your actual Christian family, immediate people that bug the living heck out of you, that you can't tolerate. There's, uh, quit feeding the homeless. Let the homeless feed themselves. You had better learn to love the person you are not loving, that is cl standing closer to you. The person starving in Calcutta, there's probably a ministry working for them, but that's not your business right now. You have to love the person you walk by in the company of believers primarily first. Not the unbelievers, not the needy, the people you don't like in the company of saints that you have closed yourself to. As an example back in 17 of life goods and things like that, you don't close yourself off to that. It's not saying that those are not legitimate arena because it's the example given, seeing your brother in need and not helping him out. It ought to have, the rubber ought to meet the road someplace. But don't, don't hide it with, you might say, more uh, uh, programmed good deeds. So, there it is, hanging out in front of you. Um, keeping the Lord's commands and loving the brethren and not just you know, have some integrity okay check it have some integrity define it the way he defines it are you closed off are you open to are you giving yourself up for and then comes something because when you say such strong things there are, there are <laughs> we got the head this uh, back in the early days of the house we used to have dishes be an honor system thing after dinner that if you hadn't done them recently, you should probably go to the kitchen and do the dishes. Well, there are some people who had far more sensitive consciences and some people who had no conscience whatsoever. And they never did the dishes. And the people who had all sorts of conscience, they not only felt did the dishes a lot, but felt bitter about all the people who never did them. We changed the system. Um, <laughs> because it did not work, giving the sinfulness of man. Now the people with no conscience just sign up for the easy jobs. Yeah, yeah there's. <laughs> but when John has, and there was always going to be some people when Leslie reads the riot act at the dinner table who just, you know, won't even listen. Others will feel it more. Oh, 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 we failed, Mrs. Wilson. Well, you've just been kicked down a flight of stairs by the apostle. He has made it very clear what's got to be, and some of you are going, oh, I, I, I don't think I, I might not be saved. <laughs> yeah. Okay, next verse. By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. He knows perfectly well that you may have come through that last three paragraphs 
a bit beat up. Um, you can be reassured in being condemned as well. There's not just reassurance and confidence in doing it right. Hey, I love the brethren and I do what God said. Hey, I'm in. I'm golden. And other people are going, I'm not golden. I, I really haven't been loving the saints like I are. I have been self-absorbed in the company of the saints. I go to church every Sunday and just take. I don't, nothing, nothing given to anyone else. And so if your conscience was bothering you, congratulations, you have met one of the other assurances of salvation. Your conscience bothering you. Because even when your hearts condemn you, for God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. God now. He's greater. We know from earlier in the book, he's our advocate. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is the kind of God we deal with. But even our encounter with the guilt, our encounter with, oh, I haven't been pleasing God. This is what we mentioned earlier about the nature of the nature of lawlessness does not stand under God's reprimand or under his uh, blessing. It, it, you, if you felt yourself to be going, I'm not what I quite ought to be yet, that condemnation you feel is part of your assurance that you're one of his. It's part of your assurance that you're one of his, because you find yourself, you're, you're like the beginning of the, the passage tonight, your encounter with God, your viewing God, your seeing God, your knowing God, changes you into his likeness. This is one of those moments when you're being told what Christ is like, when it's said, he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. There's an example. We purify ourselves as he is pure. We looked at him. What did he do? What do we do? So sometimes you go, what did he do? I'm not doing anything near like that. That, that weight on us can be an assurance. At least it tells us, reassure our hearts before him. But there's going to be some good people. We're not also running around looking like Christians. When you have a view that holiness is the expectation, when you have a view that, that uh, Christianity the normative state of Christians ought to be holy. I'm writing and saying to you, brethren, that you may not sin. That's the point. That's what we're about. Some people are going to be living, verse 21, Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. If you, if you look down at yourself and say, Yeah, I've pleased my master. And that's exactly what you should conclude. It's not somehow wrong to know you pleased God. He, he can say, well done, good and faithful servant, come into the joy of your master, and you should be able to go, hey, all right, thank you. Because not only, I, I have confidence, verse 22, and we receive from him whatever we ask. I, I have confidence and answered prayer because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. That's what the person who is not condemned gets. The person who is condemned gets reassurance that Jesus loves them and will forgive. That's their, that's their Benny. The person who is not condemned goes, I get my prayers answered, and I know where I stand. I know where I stand with the Lord, and I get my prayers answered. 
We keep, because we keep his commandments. And it pleases him. Don't forget what you can. Please, God. Remember, we, we were getting God's love back in verse 1. See what love the Father has given us? We have a, a thing going on. This is somebody. This is not a definition of God. This is not a theology that checks off certain boxes and not others regarding who the God is. This is somebody who has got reactions to us. Who expresses love because he is love, but is pleased because we have. Or, or displeased because we haven't. But since God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything, even when he's not pleased, he can restore us. And this is his commandment, verse 23, that we should believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he has commanded us. It all comes back to command, not like the Mosaic Law, a written code that killed, but a recognition of someone whose love for you, you honor with your life. You give yourself over because of who he is. And his relationship with you in love tries to get fulfillment of his commands. You fulfill commands in your life because of the love. That's the new covenant. Love fulfills the commands. And so I have an encounter with somebody who I love and because he loved, and that love is the energy, the inertia, the, the whatever, to get things happening, and everything sort of ties, even the love for one another is just as he commanded us. It was that new commandment, what we heard from the beginning, verse 11, that we should love one another. All who keep his commandments abide in him, and he in them. So, Comes back around, doesn't let it go far from, doesn't stray off into again how much scripture have you memorized. Doesn't stray into how much of the high holy days you keep. It is uh, whether or not you obey Christ determines whether or not you have a living and indwelling of God in you. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit which he has given us. And that's what, you so, say, how do you, what's that mean? I mean, do I speak it in tongues? What do I got to do? Do I heal somebody? Um, do I, anybody I can do, I, I think I have the spirit. I remember being told once by a guy in the Navy, he was charismatic, of course. He said he was more spiritual than I was because he spoke in tongues. His wife left him into a lesbian relationship. He wasn't really spiritual. I mean, don't remember his name. Don't remember it out loud, because I know you can remember these things. <laughs> the it could be recorded. It could be recorded. The first name Who knows? These talks may become valuable someday in the lawsuit. <laughs> um, how do you know the spirit that he's given you is the spirit that he has given you? Well, is it just another vagary? We got, the great thing about love is you can go back and check. You got the definition? I know know what I'm checking, looking for. By this we may know that he abides in us. Because it says if I keep his commandments, he abides in us. And we may know that he abides in us, not by, you know, you, 
you can look at the keeping his commandments, but also there's this other result. The spirit that he has given us. You look at the scriptures, the benefit of the scriptures, it lets you know what spirit is in these men that are preaching the spirit to you. What you're wondering is whether or not the spirit that Paul and John and James and, and Peter and all these guys talked of, what was it like? So that I can match what I'm like to it. So I can match what, when it says in Galatians, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. How do I know? How do I know what spirit? We get to that a little later in the book, the next chapter about believing different spirits, because there are different spirits. How do you know? You look at what they said this spirit was like. It's Galatians five: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. Missing one. Self-control. That's what it's like. And you can have confidence that love, joy, peace, patience, etc. They and you, it's not merely whether or not I'm going around doing good deeds, that kind of commandment. Remember, the commandment of the Christian is to love. The commandment of what I do is how I'm going to... How I'm going to manage loving this person? Well, how am I going to do? I'm going to do something good for this person. We end up doing ethically good things and not doing ethically bad things because we're intent on loving. And so, we also have to realize the spirit has a wider cuts a wider swath in attitudes. A lot of people think they're loving because they've got the they narrow it down to one ethical motive force and they redefine that in a way that favors them and they forget the joy and the peace, and the patience, and the kindness, and the gentleness, and the faithfulness, and the self-control. Well, those are part of what the spirit that we have, that he, if he had been given this spirit, I, am, I need to gain some of my assurance of abiding in Christ from the presence of that spirit. And since we, we not all speak in tongues, St. Paul said, not all, and even some who speak in tongues don't speak in tongues by the Holy Spirit. But loving, joyful, peaceful, patient kind of people do. Well, that is the end of chapter 3. And next week, because we follow the numeric order of things, we will do chapter 4. So I hope you can make it next week. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. Um, your love for us in your son um, is a shocking level of giving and we are needing to look more closely at you and him to see that love so that we would be more open and not closed not turning away but turning towards we ask that you would uh, give us that kind of love for the brother that we would know what it is like to give what you've given. In your son's name, amen.